Coach Wooden was not obsessed with winning. He wanted people to do their best, and that was it. He felt if we did our best and lost, there's nothing to be ashamed of. If we didn't do our best and won, there's nothing that much to be proud of. He enjoyed practice more than the game. Well, he wasn't obsessed with winning, but he won. And I think one of the reasons that he won so much is that he focused on what was more important, that's doing things right, as opposed to just focusing on the end result. Brian Kane, your peak performance and mental conditioning coach, and today we are privileged to have Marshall Goldsmith, the New York Times best-selling author of What Got You Here, Won't Get You There, How Successful People Become Even More Successful. He's one of the leading authorities on leadership in the world, and just very, very privileged to have you here today, Marshall. I appreciate you making time. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Uh, just for the, for the listeners, could you... Kind of talk us through how you got to where you are today as a New York Times best-selling author and, and one of the foremost sure. leading authorities on leadership. Well, I was uh, uh, I'm from Kentucky. Went to school in Indiana. I got a PhD in organizational behavior at UCLA. I was a college professor and dean when I was very young. I met a very famous man named Dr. Paul Hersey in the executive education field, and I've been doing executive education now for 36 years. I do three things. One is I give talks or teach classes, which is what I enjoy doing most. And half of that's outside the United States. So I travel around the world constantly. On American Airlines alone, I have over 11 million frequent flyer miles. So I'm kind of a mega flyer. Then I coach executives. And my coaching clients are CEOs and could be CEOs of huge companies. So I've been the coach of people like the CEO Ford, CEO Glaxo, CEO Pfizer, uh, the president of the World Bank, the head of the Republic Library, the head of the Mayo Clinic, just a whole plethora of very, very smart, wonderful people. And what I love about coaching is, coaching is where I learn everything. I learn so much from coaching because I'm dealing with the real-world situation with a very important leader, some of the most important in the world, and I'm trying to help them get better. And then the third thing I do is write and edit books and articles. I think I've done 36 books now. I've done a couple of New York Times bestsellers, Mojo and What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And then I've done a few others that have been bestsellers in their own niche. So life is good. Fantastic. And I think for you know, the, the level of people that you're, that you're, you're coaching, you know, for, the, for the NCAA coaches that will be listening to this at a very high level, I think that uh, sometimes, as you, as you outlined so well in your, in your book, that as a leader at a high level, sometimes – it's hard to really see how other people see you and get that direct feedback. So there's such a, such a disconnect between where people at that highest level of leadership really are and where they maybe see themselves is where they actually see, they, see themselves is where they are. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there's something I talk about in the book called the superstition trap. And in many ways, the more successful we become in life, the more difficult everything I teach is to implement. Uh, the success, the success, uh, the, uh, the success delusion or the superstition trap is called, I behave this way, I am successful, therefore I must be successful because I behave this way. Well, all your top coaches are very successful people and they're successful because they do many things right. They're pretty much all successful in spite of doing some things that are dumb. And I've never met anybody that's so wonderful they had nothing on the in spite of list. 
Well, the higher up we go in life, the more powerful and important we become, two things happen. One, we get more and more positive feedback about ourselves, which is not a bad thing. The challenge is this. Uh, the better we feel about ourselves, the harder it is to hear something negative. We all accept feedback from others that's consistent with the way we see ourselves. We all reject or deny feedback from others that's inconsistent with the way we see ourselves. The more glowing our self-assessment is, the harder it is to hear negative feedback. And then two, the more important, successful, and powerful we become, the harder it is for other people to give us negative feedback. They're intimidated by us, and they have trouble telling us the truth. Excellent. I think that, that, that becomes one of the traps you know, that people fall into. And, and one of the advices you, you give in, in your book is about feed forward and feed backward. You know, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of feedback, but could you talk about both the 360 feedback process and the importance of that, but then also feed forward? Well, in my coaching, I use both feed forward and feedback. Feedback is a great tool to help you figure out where you are. And every one of the CEOs I work with gets confidential feedback from everyone around him or her. They all take important behaviors to improve, and then they all follow up. When they follow up, they use something called feed forward. That is not asking for feedback about the past, but asking for ideas for the future. And it's something you can do with your teams. It's something the coaches can do. Uh, the feed forward exercise works like this. For example, I'll stand in front of a group of people of any size from six to 6,000, and I can say, all right, in the next five minutes, I want you to talk to as many people as you can. You're going to either be learning as much as you can from the smart people around you or helping as much as you can from the nice people around you. And the rules are, number one, no feedback about the past. You can't critique or judge what they've done in the past, only ideas for the future. And then number two, you can't judge or critique people's ideas. When they give you ideas, you can't say good idea, bad idea. I already knew that. That'll never work. Just shut up and say thank you. You treat the ideas like a gift. Well, then I have people do this. They say, my name is, I want to get better at. They get ideas, they say, thank you. The other person, my name is, I want to get better at. Ideas, thank you. They talk to as many people as they can. At the end of the exercise, they ask people to describe the exercise. They invariably say, it's positive, useful, helpful, or fun. 95% of the people say that, no matter what country I am. And I've done this with hundreds of thousands of people from around the world. Then I say, why? Well, it's focused on a future you can change, on a past you can't change anyway. It talks about what we can do, what we can't do, and and it's uh, no, not judging, it's not critiquing. Everybody picks what they want to improve at. So they go through the reasons. And if any of your readers would like, I'd be happy to send you the feed forward article and just describe how the whole process works. That'd be tremendous. I'd love love to see that article. That'd be fantastic. Actually, if, is, there, where, is there a place where we can find that online or? Yeah, I have a website, www.mynamemarshallgoldsmith.com, and Marshall has two L's. And uh, I give away everything. I'm a Buddhist. All my material, you can copy, share, download, duplicate, use any way you want. I've had somebody from 195 countries listen to, uh, download, um, copy something website over 19 million times. So it's very, very popular making a strong impact on the world. And we appreciate you and your, your gift that you're, you're giving. Could you talk about uh, maybe the 20 habits? And, and you know, I think a lot, a lot of times people focus on, uh, you know, in trainings. And I think you gave a quote from Peter Drucker about, you know, they spend a lot of time teaching leaders what to do, uh, but we don't spend enough time teaching leaders what to stop or what not to do. And a lot of the coaches that I've worked with you know, maybe don't need to learn so much about what to do. They do a lot of things very, very well, but maybe it's just a one or two things that they need to stop that's really causing a divide between 
how they want to be seen and how they're seen, or just their communication with their program. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of being aware of not only what you do well, but also what you need to change, and then maybe the 20 habits? Well, I think, again, back to the superstition trap, we all need to change something. And the important thing is not trying to play, be a little god, but to realize we can all improve. And by the way, everything I teach doesn't just apply at work, it all applies at home. So I could imagine, uh, uh, let's take the men coaches that you have, I would imagine the ones that are married, if they go home and ask their wife, you know, dear, is there anything I can improve? I doubt too many of the wives would say, oh, not you, dear, you're just perfect. I would imagine most of them do have a little bit of room for improvement. So we all got a little something we could do better. Um, I was interviewed in the Harvard Business Review and asked, what's the number one problem with the successful people that you coach? And I, and I thought about your group, and I'm sure this is perfect for your group. My answer was winning too much. What does that mean? If it's important, we want to win. If it's meaningful, we want to win. If it's trivial, we want to win. If it's not worth it, we want to win anyway. See, the people that you're dealing with are hyper-competitive people who love winning. In the game of life, they're winners. It's hard for winners not to constantly win. case study I use is you want to go to dinner at restaurant X. Your wife, husband, partner, significant other wants to go to dinner at restaurant Y. If you had an argument, you go to restaurant Y. It's not your choice. Food tastes awful. Service is terrible. Option A, critique the food. Point out our partner was wrong. This mistake could have been avoided if only you listened to me, me, me. Option B, shut up, eat the stupid food, try to enjoy it, and have a nice evening. What would I do? What should I do? Almost all my clients, what would I do? Critique the food. What should I do? Shut up. It's very hard for smart, successful people not to constantly go through life winning and proving we're right over and over and over again. And by the way, this doesn't mean not on the big stuff. I mean, you've got to win the big stuff. But I'm talking about the small stuff or the stuff where winning doesn't matter. And I'm sure most of your coaches, uh, they bring that same coach-like behavior home. And when they're with their wife and kids, they probably still play the role of coach half the time, which probably just annoys the crap out of everybody. Uh, next classic problem with smart, successful people is adding too much value. What's that mean? I'm young, smart, enthusiastic. I come to you with an idea. I think it's a great idea. Rather than, you think it's a great idea. Rather than just saying great idea, our natural tendency is to say, well, that's a nice idea. Uh, why don't you add this to it? Well, the problem is the quality of the idea may go up 5%. My commitment to executing the idea may go down 50%. And this is one the head coaches have to really watch with the assistant coaches. Because when the assistant coach comes up with the idea, you know, are they really listening? Are they trying to get that assistant coach to have ownership and pride are they more focused on proving that they're better than the assistant coach or smarter than the assistant coach and having to add value to whatever the assistant coach says? So this is a very, very good one to work on. One of my good coaching clients retired several years ago. His name is J.P. Garnier. He's the CEO of a very large drug company, GlaxoSmithKline. Ask him, what did you learn about leadership as a CEO of this huge company? He said, I learned a hard lesson. My suggestions become orders. He said, if they're smart, they're orders, and if they're stupid, they're orders. If I want them to be orders, they're orders, and if I don't want them to be orders, they're still orders anyway. My suggestions are orders. I asked him, what did you learn from me when I was your executive coach that helped you the most? He said, you taught me one lesson, helped me be a better leader and have a happier life. I asked him, what was that lesson? He said, before I speak, stop and breathe and ask myself one question. Is it worth it? And he said, as the CEO of this big company, 50% of the time, 
had the discipline to stop and breathe and ask myself, is it worth it? What did I decide? Am I right? Maybe. Is it worth it? No. I think that's fantastic. And I think often you're absolutely right in that these you know, coaches that are in college athletics or high school athletics that, that need to win the big things are always feeling like they need to win win uh, you know everything, even the small things. You know, For the athletes that will be listening to this too, I think I see a lot of sarcasm that goes on amongst teammates and coaches you know, feed into the sarcasm. Could you talk a little bit about you know, habit number four, about the sarcastic and destructive comments and the importance of really being very, aware? Very, of very important point. Yeah, one of the things I teach is on the things not to do list or bad habits is avoid making destructive comments. And this is really antithetical to team play. Team members putting each other down, making sarcastic comments, uh, trying to be better than the other team members, very, very bad for team play. I mean, everybody preaches this sermon. We want to create an environment where people reach out across the organization and build teamwork. What happens to the quality of teamwork when I stab my team member in the back? That doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. This is something that's a bad habit. Some teams really don't have it at all, and some teams have it way too much. And it's something the coach could control. One thing I do is I find my clients money for every sin, $20. Now, if you think about who my clients are, they're basically old, rich men. Uh, n- not all of them, but 80% of them are old, rich men. You might think, what do they care for $20? They're so rich, if they dropped it on the ground, it wouldn't be worth bending them to pick up. They'd rather die than lose $20. It's shocking how this works. So I find people, every time they make destructive comments, money, and it is amazing how this, and we give the money to charity, too, which all goes to good causes. It's amazing how well this works to get people to change behavior, and I've raised over $800,000 for nice charities over the year. So there are a lot of good deeds and help people stop a bad habit, making destructive comments. Wow, so over $800,000 for, for helping people to help people. I think that's, that's outstanding. The, uh, you know, number 16, the not listening. And I think so many times you, you get around coaches in a, in a staff meeting and you sit in on that staff meeting. I'm sure it's the same thing in the corporate world where the head coach or the CEO dominates the conversation and you know, the assistants are there just kind of waiting for the meeting to be over because whatever they have to say doesn't really matter anyway because they're going to do what the head coach and the CEO wants to do anyway and he doesn't hear what they say. Could you talk a little bit about that not listening but also you know, the dominating of the conversation? Well, there's a few suggestions I would have on this one. One of my clients is CEO of one of the world's largest companies and Overall, his feedback was excellent. One area he got very bad feedback on was people would speak, he'd roll his eyes and make sarcastic comments. And he had to learn you can't do that when you're in a leadership role. You just devastate people, and for no good cause, right? It was just a bad habit that he had. And he's not a bad person. It was just a bad habit. Now he's much better. He doesn't do it anymore. Some things you can do to be a better listener. One is I teach people, as a coach or the boss, you always need to look like you care. Now, you can't always care because sometimes people say nonsense or you get bored. And everybody thinks being a CEO is glamorous. A lot of CEOs' job is boring. They're sitting in meetings, watching PowerPoint slides, stuff they've already seen, and everybody in the room staring at their face. They've always got to look like they care. Why? If they don't look like they care, they just devastate the people around them. And by the way, that's not being a phony. That's being a professional. So one thing I teach people is always look like you care. One of my coaching clients was Liz Smith. She was the president of Avon. She reported to Andrea Young, who was the CEO. Liz asked Andrea, does coaching mean I have to watch what I say and how I act in every meeting for the rest of my career? Andrea says, welcome to my world. That's exactly what it means. 
Well, you know, if you want to be the big boss, you want to get the big bucks, pay the price. Have some discipline. You know, be a professional. Always show up. And always, you know, the great leaders I work with, I work with Francis Hesselblind, um, National Executive Director of the Girl Scouts of the United States. Peter Drucker said the greatest leader he ever met in his life. He won more awards in leadership than you can count. The Presidential Medal of Freedom winner. Always, I am up, I am positive. She always listens, she always cares. Alan Mulally, the CEO of Ford Motor Company, spectacular job of turning it around. Fantastic attitude. Hubert Jolie is turning around Best Buy right now and his coach. Wonderful job. My friend Liz Smith left Avon. She's at Lumen Brands Restaurant where she stocks up 800% since she got there. These people are professionals. They're dedicated. They're hardworking. And they always communicate that sense of I'm professional and I'm caring. So I think, you know, to be a good listener, number one, you got to look like you care. Number two, don't always butt in. Before you speak, breathe and ask yourself, is my, at work, breathe. Is my comment going to improve this other person's commitment? If the answer is no, then breathe again and say, is it worth making? Well, sometimes it is. My friend JP said half the time he still added value, but half the time he didn't. And at home, breathe. Is my comment going to improve this relationship with another human being? If the answer is no, breathe again. Is this comment worth making? If you have to ask at work about half the time, it's not worth making. If you have to ask at home, it's almost never worth making. And so I think very important for the coach the leader to be a role model in terms of behavior and to realize everyone in that room is looking at your face. They're listening to every word that you say. And what you say matters. It's very important to show that you care about them, you hear them, you're listening to them. You don't have to agree with them. Leadership's not a popularity contest, but you can listen to them. You know, in the 21st goal that you write about, the goal obsession, I mean, I think I see that in athletics all over the place where – you know, coaches, let's take college baseball. You're, you're in you know, California where college baseball is, is huge. And many coaches have the goal of winning the national championship, going to Omaha and raising the trophy. And many coaches will sacrifice relationships and burn bridges and do anything that they think is possible to win at all costs to get there. And then I've heard some coaches say that when they get there, they look back three days after winning the national championship and say, wow. Is that all there is? And then they're disappointed about all the relationships that they've burned, you know, to get to that point because they thought that the national championship was going to change their life, and they find out that it really doesn't. Could you talk about goal obsession, what it means? I, I, think, maybe I think your, your, your example is an excellent, excellent example of goal obsession. And goal obsession, when our goal becomes more important than our mission, when things that are less important become more important, things that are more important, if you look at goal obsession, you see it in athletics all the time. People take drugs. How many people in athletics have taken drugs before because they're obsessed with winning? So winning starts becoming more important than playing fair. They take drugs. They cheat. Uh, they get caught. Their reputation is ruined. For what? Because they're so obsessed with winning, they forget that the price they're paying to win. So goal obsession is one that you see a lot of times in sports. And the other thing is winning... Uh, falsifying grades, uh, you can go on and on. I had the privilege of going to UCLA when their basketball coach was John Wooden. And I also had the privilege of being at a program he was at, and I got a chance to talk to him a few times. And Coach Wooden was not obsessed with winning. He wanted people to do their best. And that was it. He felt if we did our best and lost, there's nothing to be ashamed of. If we didn't do our best and won, there's nothing that much to be proud of. 
he enjoyed practice more than the game. Well, he wasn't obsessed with winning, but he won. And I think one of the reasons that he won so much is that he focused on what was more important, that's doing things right, as opposed to just focusing on the end result. So that is a real, real potential danger in sports. And there are countless unfortunate examples of people who become so obsessed with winning that they've ruined their family lives. They've hit players. People have taken drugs. they cheated. They've had recruiting violations. I mean, how long is the list? Why? They felt the need to win, and they forgot that winning is a value, but winning is not the only value. Winning I like what you said. Integrity. There's no question there, and I love what you said about how, you know, when the goal becomes bigger than your mission, you become goal-obsessed. And I think any coach that you talk to at some point, if you ask them about their mission, you know, it's not going to say to have a tombstone that has all the all the championships engraved on it. It's going to talk about they're going to talk about relationships and making a difference and being a right. builder of young men and young women. And I think sometimes they lose sight of that. You know, Marshall, for right. for the coaches listening to this that that want to get better, that want to change, you offer some strategies for improvement. Which strategies do you think would fit best in that arena of of collegiate athletics? Well, one is they can get some input. Confidential feedback is very interesting. Uh, not usually, uh, something that corporate people do all the time, but and athletics hasn't been done as much. And I don't just mean from the players, from the assistant coaches, from the people they work with, and the staff, uh, from the president of the university, people like that. They get some feedback on how they're perceived by the people around them. Then they pick important behavior to improve. Then they learn to talk to people about what they learned. And then they follow up and ask for input. And I wrote another article, if anybody would like it, you can send me an email, send you a copy of it, called Leadership's Context Board. It was a study with 86,000 participants about improving leadership effectiveness. And it shows that leaders who ask for input listen, follow up on a regular basis, and then measure improvement almost invariably get better. Leaders who just go to classes or read books, well, improvement's not much better than random chance. Fantastic. The, uh, you know, you, you talk about having the feedback and feed forward, and, you know, one of the things you mentioned in, in the world and advertising kind of what, what it is you're working on and making that public, could you address that too? Because I think so many times coaches are hesitant to let other people know what it is they're working on for their personal development and to become a better coach and leader because I think sometimes they see that as, as showing weakness. Yeah, if you look at all the leaders I coach, and, I mean, as much money as your coaches make, even at the top end, they don't make anything like the people I work with because these are CEOs of huge multi-billion dollar corporations, right? And um, of all the people I coach, they all get feedback. They all publicly talk about what they're trying to improve. They all follow up on a regular basis, and they all measure improvement. And the advantage of that, I wrote an article called Help Others Develop, Start With Yourself. If you want everybody else to get better, why don't you try to get better yourself? Why don't you show them the value of improvement as opposed to just preaching at them? So this is an area that I think is going to change in the world of athletics because there has been a sort of macho, I'm right, I'm God syndrome, as opposed to, look, I'm not really God here, I'm just a human too, and let's all just get better. So I think this is something that is going to change over time. Excellent. And you also mentioned, you know, that uh, there are some special challenges for people who are in charge. You know, they must 
stop uh, a few critical things to help get to the next level, like stop letting your staff overwhelm you, uh, you know, stop, act, stop acting as if you're managing you, stop checking the box. What are, what are some of those key things that you, that you see? Let me, uh, let, me talk about, let me talk about probably the one that's the most relevant. It's stop acting like you're managing you. And this is something my daughter has taught me about a lot. It's called fundamental attribution error. We tend to look at other people and kind of expect them to be us. And then we're always surprised when they don't demonstrate the same characteristics that we do. And, you know, the important thing is for a coach or a parent or a leader to realize that the people we're leading are not us. They have different backgrounds, different histories. And, and sometimes you see as generations change, it's hard for some coaches to change because they're used to, quote, the good old days and people in a certain generation, and they're assuming that's the way people should be. And they have trouble relating to the way people are. Well, people are what they are. And the idea is you're not managing you. You're managing or leading other people, and your idea should be to deal with what's there and make the best of it as opposed to sitting there saying, why aren't they all me? Marshall, last question for you. Given so much great content and practical things that our coaches can take away and use, if there was one thing that you know now, with all of your experience, all of your wisdom, if there was one thing that you knew now that you wish you knew when you were, say, just getting started around 30, 35 years old, what would that one thing be? Don't make it so much about yourself. Um, one of the great leaders I ever met is Alan Mulally, who's the CEO of Ford. And of all the people I've coached, he probably improved the most, needed to improve the least, was fantastic to start with. He was the CEO of the year in the United States last year. I asked Alan, what should I learn about coaching from you? He taught me two great lessons. He said, lesson number one, your biggest challenge as a coach is called customer selection. You pick the right people, your coaching process works, wrong people find your work. You've got to have great people. So when I coach people now, I'm really sensitive about who I work with. And by the way, to your coaches, no matter how good they are, good lesson, you've got to have great people. If you don't have the talent, you need the best coach in the world, and you're still wasting your time. They're going to go no place. And then number two, he said, don't make coaching about yourself and your own ego and how smart you are. Make it about the great people you work with and how hard they try. Really focus on them and getting the best out of them, not you improving how smart you are. These are great bits of advice. And um, he said, my job as a leader isn't that different. He said, first, got to have great people. He said, I don't design the cars and build the cars and sell the cars. And he said, two, every day I drive to work, I tell myself leadership's not about me. Leadership's about them. Well, for the great tennis player, maybe it's all about me. For the great uh, coach, it's all about them. For the great coach, it was team sport particularly, it's all about them. You, you gotta, you're, you're not there for you, you're there for them. And your goal is not just to help them be a great athlete or win a game. It goes to help them have a great life. And I think to the degree your coaches can just keep that in your head. It's not about me. I want to help this person. I don't want to be a great athlete. I want to help this kid have a great life. That goes a long way. Marshall, I'm sorry. I came up with another question as I was listening to your answer there. Is, is, there, is there any tips that maybe you use yourself, strategies that you use yourself, to find that work-life balance. I see that as a tremendous challenge. I'm sure you see it in the corporate world where bringing work home with the, with the, the CEO 
you know, I see our coaches do that a lot. Is there any practical strategies or tips that you could offer to help achieve better work-life balance and really leave work at work? Measure it. Measure how many days you devote, how many hours, how many minutes you devote to family time every day. Measure it in the same way you measure any other goal. If you measure it, you set goals, you treat it like any other important assignment, you'll do well. If you don't measure it, you don't set goals, you just sort of say, I guess I should do that. Um, I have somebody every day call me up on the phone and go through things I measure, 32 questions a day. And the reason is not because I don't know how to change. The reason is because I do know how to change. I know how hard it is. I work with the smartest people in the world who want to get better. No, I'll tell you it's hard. You need to measure it. You need to follow up. And you need to make it a discipline as part of life. Fantastic. Marshall, again, I want to thank you for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule to sit down and share your, your wisdom with, with our coaches. And for the coaches that are listening, is there anywhere that they can follow you? I know you mentioned your website. Do you have a newsletter or a blog? Yeah, just send me, you know, just send me an email. If anybody wants to, I can sign them up on my newsletters and blogs and stuff. Too. Just send me an email. Marshall at marshallgoldsmith.com. I'd be happy to sign them up. Fantastic. I'm sure you'll get a huge following. And again, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate you, and uh, best to you in the rest of 13 and 13 and beyond. Well, thank you for the good work that you're doing, and thank you for asking me to do this. Thanks for listening to the Peak Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a positive review or share a link to this episode on social media using hashtag PeakPod. Mention Brian Kane and one thing you learned in this episode for your chance to win a free ticket to the next Brian Kane Experience live event. Dominate the day.